All right. Well, welcome to our midweek Bible study as we uh, continue on with the book of James, chapter 3. Uh, tonight, we're going to hopefully maybe make a little more progress. Uh, I try to remain hopeful, but uh, I was looking and going over my notes today, and I'm like, yeah, I don't think we're getting that far. <laughs> so I'm trying not to be pessimistic, but uh, as I've uh, as I've said before, you know, I'm pretty pessimistic, and I'm not even sure about that. So, but uh, we'll go ahead and uh, get started here in just a minute. We'll go ahead and pray uh, first, and then uh, we'll go ahead with the lesson. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you again for uh, time and opportunity to be in your word tonight, to study, to uh, search out uh, the meanings that we see in your word and your scripture. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you would just guide and direct our thoughts this uh, evening as we endeavor to please you with our study, and that, Lord, uh, you would just, uh, again, show us areas in our lives that uh, we need to change, specifically in regards to uh, what we speak and what we say. pray, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit would just guide and direct this time, that it would be honoring unto you and uh, your word, and that, uh, again, Lord, above all, we would take these things and we would hide them in our hearts, and that, Lord, we would... Uh, constantly uh, revisit them and refresh them, remember them uh, in order to please you with all that we do. Thank you again for our time and uh, those that are here. Uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, again you just uh, uh, bring those that are still coming uh, safely. And I thank you again for all that you've done for us. This I ask in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in James chapter 3, we, we kind of left off. We got uh, a little bit through verse uh, uh, 1 and started getting into uh, verse 2. Covered the issue of authority, and uh, obviously um, authority is uh, one of the ways that we see authority uh, actuated is uh, through words, through uh, what has been dictated or printed into law or said or anything of that matter. Um, so very clearly we started talking about, uh, how we need to be careful and that's how he starts off about, uh, making sure that we're not uh, presenting ourselves as authorities when we shouldn't be, but we're very careful to make sure that we, uh, maintain words that are essentially not going to be, uh, harmful or a stumbling block to others. Because when we look at verse two here in James three, it says, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. <laughs> when we think about this, uh, just for a moment, we, we, we really have to kind of, if you will, focus on that word offend. Um, there is uh, a lot that scripture talks about when it comes to offense and offending others. Um, uh, that that really gives us uh, a lot of material with which we can define that word. Uh, you know, a lot of times we try to define words by looking at dictionaries, but one thing that we know is dictionaries change. Dictionaries are written by man, and uh, dictionaries uh, uh, um, are often uh, altered to fit uh, various other uh, agendas, and we have to be careful with that. But the Bible is a book that is self-defining. If you really want to find out what uh, some words mean, you start looking at them. And most of the words in Scripture are going to be 
defined by other areas of scripture. Because when we take a look here at this, uh, this, uh, uh, word offend in verse two, we find that it was uh, just mentioned over there in chapter two, specifically, uh, over there in verse 10, it says, for whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So one thing that we know about uh, offend or offense is that it can be used to describe sin. Uh, it can also be used to describe a stumbling block. It can be used to uh, describe um, various other uh, meanings and implications as we go through Scripture. But the ones that we're going to take a look at tonight uh, specifically deal with uh, the uh, uh, what's being offended here. And specifically our words. If we turn to Romans chapter 14, we'll, we'll kind of get an idea and a concept of a little bit what we're talking about tonight in Romans chapter 14. And in verse uh, 21, it says, it is neither, uh, it is good neither to eat uh, flesh nor drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. So what we find here in this passage, and there's a lot to be said about what's going on here, uh, when people are lacking charity and they're lacking uh, the proper way to treat others, uh, they are going to use physical things, if you will, to bully others. Uh, whether it's uh, some form of legalism or some idea or concept opinion that they formed that they try to use to dictate the lives of others. As an example, there are um, uh, religions that are out there that dictate to you what you can and what you cannot eat. You know, uh, but the Lord has made it that clear that that's kind of, if you will, your personal preference. Uh, as long as you're not making somebody else stumble and uh, causing them to become weak in the faith, which is what an offense would be, uh, you can eat whatever it is that you want to eat, you know, obviously abstaining from things of blood and such that he says that we should stay, stay away from. But very clearly he, he makes it, you know, when he's talking about here, whether it's eating or drinking, whatever it may be, uh, we have to be careful with it because we do not want to cause another brother or sister in Christ to stumble, which would mean to fall in the faith cause them to question uh, what is really going on with Christianity or something of that nature uh, in such a way that they have, you know, not looking for answers, but to, to, to basically say, well, I, I think that this is, you know, a bunch of cultish material or whatever it may be. Because there are religions out there that do push those agendas. There's one that is, it basically says that if you don't eat according to their dietary guidelines, you are putting your salvation at risk. Now, that, that's, that's ridiculous. I don't find anything like that in scripture at all, uh, uh, meant for us in, in any way, shape, or form. But, you know, they, they, they push those type of things. And what that does is that causes an individual that may be a young Christian, when they look at that, go, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing these things. And maybe that's a difficult thing for them. Maybe they don't understand it. And it causes what is cons considered here an offense. Turn over to 1 Corinthians, uh, kind of in a, in a little bit of a parallel, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and let's go ahead and take a look at uh, verse 13. He says, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. And he's saying here that he does not want to cause an issue in the body of Christ with a person that is a a, a saved, born-again child of God. He does not want to cause something that is an offense, something that will, as we just read over there in uh, uh, Romans, to cause them to stumble. That's something that's very clear that the Lord points out in, in his word that we have to be careful with it. Because when we start looking at the Word of God, the Word of God is obviously very, very clear about the matter. The Word of God is not something that is going to be, if you will, uh, offending, causing a person to stumble. If you go over to Psalm chapter 119 in verse 165, the Bible says specifically, great peace have they which... Uh, now I just butchered it in my head. Let's turn there. <laughs> I had it, and then it just kind of fell out. You know, it's one of those things, senility slowly slipping in. Um, 119.165, he says right there, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. You know, and and when we start thinking about this, obviously he's talking about the, the word of God. He's talking about those things. And a person that truly is listening to God and listening to the word of God, they're not going to be offended by what's contained in it. They're going to learn from it. And we have to match our words to what God is saying. So we have to have a scriptural foundation for what it is we are communicating. And we go back to the James chapter 3, verse 2, he says, for in many things we offend all, there's, there is a lot of things that we say and that we do that cause other people to stumble in their faith. We're not edifying. We're not, we're not speaking, uh, uh, truth with love. We're not, uh, uh, you know, communicating, uh, uh, with, uh, our, our, our words seasoned with grace. We're not doing it, it you know, the, the right way as Proverbs talks about that we've already Address where he starts talking about a word fitly spoken. Uh, we're not doing those type of things. What we're doing is we're just uh, uh, getting into these, uh, these, if you will, habits of just saying whatever it is that we want to say. And God makes it clear that the fool speaks his whole mind. So we as believers, if we're trusting God, we're not going to be foolish, acting like God's not going to take those things into account. We we are going to respond the right way. Over in Proverbs fifteen twenty three, it says, "A man hath joy by the answer of his mouth, and a word spoken in due season. How good it is! Our words should 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 be free from offense. They should be free from offensive language. Now, I'm not talking about being politically correct and things of that nature." But there is a way to be able to speak to a person that you communicate the intent and you communicate it in such a way that that, it, that the manner is not going to be offensive. Because if you look at the importance behind what God's saying here, he's saying very clearly that if we can just get a hold of this concept, perfection is right there. 
I mean, you look at the rest of the verse, he says, if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man. The same is a perfect man. And if we start thinking about this and we think about how, you know, uh, if you will, the Lord's pointing out that, that offense by words is, is, is a, very important to him. Uh, he basically says that if we can get to the point of where we can control the tongue, we are able to bring the rest of our body into submission. Now let's think about this just for a moment. Our tongues are always going, aren't they? It never stops, does it? When you think in your in your head, you think generally in the term of words, don't you? You dream, if you will. There's words that are often there. There's something that's there. There's images and so on and so forth. I understand that. But there, there's things that are communicated. We as believe, you know, believers understand this. We talk to ourselves. Not like the guy on the street corner. I'm not, not mocking that mental health issue, but what I'm saying is we're not in that type of mentality, but we do talk to ourselves and we do respond to ourselves. We find it in scripture. Over and over again, we find writers talking about how they, they said, well, my soul said to me and I said to my soul, you know, having a conversation with themselves. And that's a normal thing that we do. So we even have to get a control over those kind of words. It's not just things that we say, it's about what originates out of our hearts. So we have to grab a hold of this concept of how important words are. To God, words are so important that his word, he said, he's magnified above his own name. That's how important God views his word. That's important, how important, by the way, we should observe his word is we should make sure that we understand that concept of how, how, how important it really truly is. That's why when I go through and I read scripture, I'm looking at it going, God chose those words for a reason and he chose to phrase it that way for a reason so that we would understand it. I mean, it's so important, the words are so important that that, that God points out here that if we can get a hold of the concept, that we can actually be perfect. Now, Now, let's understand, and we're going to take a little time here to kind of define that, because I think it's very important for us to understand we often hear the word perfect and we think something totally different than what God thinks. And, and, and I find that that's generally how a lot of people operate. They will have framed in their mind that what they think is a word or the definition of a word and they think that's what it is and then come to find out that's not really the case. You know, so as an example, I always point this one out, the word charity, why is that word chosen by God? Why didn't he choose some other word? Other translations go out there and they use the word love in place of charity. That's not the proper use of it. It's charity for a reason because it's communicating something about the heart and it's communicating something about sacrifice. 
While love may involve sacrifice, charity is, is going, if you will, in, in a step towards showing and demonstrating that that person has a mindset that they really truly are not concerned about what the total outcome is for them. They're more concerned about someone else's well-being, somebody else's position, and if you will, how they're doing. So when we think about this word offend, or as we've talked about, and the word perfect, we often have these kind of, you know, different definitions behind it. Because again, you know, people will think offense and offend, like if I was to walk up to somebody and just say, hey, you're a jerk, that might be offensive to somebody. But I can say things in a way that, that, uh, maybe, you know, communicate something similar in form, but are less, if you will, aggressive. So it's words, it's the content of words, it's how it's given. All of these things we have to work on perfecting. We have to work on perfecting. And to perfect something is, you know, the word perfect in the noun form is to mean finished, complete. Not 100% perfect, you know, as we think 100% perfect, we think something that is without fault. That's actually not what the word perfect means. That's not what the word perfect is about. You know, God understands that we have faults. He knows that we fall. He knows where our temptations are. He knows how to help us with all of that. He knows how to give us the way to escape them, as Scripture says. So when we start looking at this, we we begin to understand God truly understands when he uses that word perfect, that he, he is very clearly pointing something out that he understands we're going to have some struggles and faults along the way. But yet he still says we can be perfect. Uh, in the verbs tense of what, it, what we're talking about here means to, to finish or to complete so as to leave nothing wanting. Now that's an important thing to think about. We should not be left wanting, if you will, anything that is concerning God. The reason that we think that we can't get to perfection is because we always think that there's something else that we need. Enter James chapter 4, where he starts talking about lust. So here we are talking about uh, uh, what it means to be perfect. Let's take a look at a couple of passages. Turn to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, and in verse 1, it's talking about Abraham. And in this, it refers to him as Abram. Uh, It says, before God had changed his name. Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. I want you to see what he tells Abraham here. And in verse 1 it says, Abram was 90 years old and 9. He's 99 years old. The Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Now let me ask you a question. At this point in time, had Abraham any sons? No. 
You remember the big debacle that was created when uh, Sarah kind of was like, uh, why don't you take my handmaid, Hagar? And they created a whole big mess that's still going on today. (laughs) You think that was perfection? God understood the faults. God knew exactly what what he was saying. And what he was telling Abraham was that he can be perfect. Now, this is before Jesus Christ, okay? This is before Jesus Christ died on the cross. So what we begin to see here is that that what God was intending, and he's, he makes it very clear here, walk before me, he's talking about the walk of, of if you will, this believer Abraham. We know what, what Abraham, you know, did. Abraham believed God at his word and it was counted unto him as righteousness, right? We've already read those passages. James even talked about Abraham further talking about how he was justified by the, the demonstration of the works that he did. But what we find here is he's talking about Abraham and God gives him that commandment. He says, be perfect. Be perfect. Now, mind you, Abraham did not have one shred of a Bible. It had not been written. Nothing had been penned at this point. Not even the book of Job. So very clearly, God is saying, hey, I've got an expectation. And fast forward a few thousand years to hear where we are, and we've got church, and we've got believers that can help edify us, the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit that speaks to us, uh, a, a, a Bible that is perfect, preserved, and inspired right here for us that we can have on our laps, that we can read every single day, that we can study, all of these things that Abraham did not have. If Abraham can accomplish that, I think that we can. I mean, it's kind of also how he described Job, too. Perfect, upright, shewing evil. Take a look at another passage and go over to um, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Let me ask you this question. Was the nation of Israel perfect? You know, we, we kind of chuckle and laugh, but I have to say, you know, we have to take, you know, a good look at ourselves as, as the body of Christ and look at what we've done recently. And, you know, I keep getting these things that, you know, keep popping up in my feeds because of likes and so on and so forth. And I see these things that these other churches are doing and I'm just sitting there going, that's not church. And I just kind of sigh and go, oh. Please don't call yourself a Christian because it's, 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 it's humiliating. It's embarrassing. The stuff that they do. Uh, I saw one that uh, was a, it was a guessing game and you had to guess um, these Christmas programs, which one were secular and which ones were world. I don't know if anybody saw that pop up and it was this guy, he was kind of doing his little podcast and he was guessing which ones were secular and which ones were and you couldn't tell the difference. And one popped up where they were singing Jingle Bell Rock. 
And he's like, well, obviously that one's secular. And it was revealed that no, that wasn't, that was, that was, that was a church program. And it was like, wait, what? How is that glorifying God? And it was, it was just kind of sad to see that. But, you know, we, we, I, I say that to, to basically, you know, before we start going throwing, you know, Israel under the bus, we need to take a look at our own actions first. But we do know that Israel failed frequently. But take a look at what God says to the nation of Israel here in uh, verse 13, Deuteronomy chapter 18. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. Now, obviously, there's some stipulations that he had with this, and that was to keep his commandments, that was to follow him, that was to do all of these things. You know, when they're coming to the land, they're supposed to, you know, do certain things about purging, not learn the ways of the people that were there, not follow their idols, and so on and so forth. Uh, all of these things, and it was going to be, if you will, their witness and their testimony that we see that he talks about uh, later on. And, and, you know, again, he even talks about uh, Christ in the in this passage in a messianic prophecy, talking about him as the prophet with a capital P. But but very clearly, he 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 says exactly what we we kind of look at and go, wait, that's what Israel is supposed to be. Perfect. Perfect. Let's take a look at another one and go over to Second Samuel. Second Samuel. In Second Samuel chapter twenty two. Second Samuel chapter twenty two. And uh you know, here we have uh David uh giving some thanksgiving and uh basically praising the Lord for something and and, and I wanna wanna point this out. Uh, you start in verse thirty one. It says, As for God. This is, this is, this is David's declaration of God. As for God, his way is perfect. Excuse me. Ow. That hurt. <laughs> um, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He's a buckler to all them that trust in him. And it's interesting. I want you to see the connection that's there. David made the connection when it came to God, his perfection is related to what he says, God says, his word. Because he makes it very clear here, he says, you know, right there, as he's continuing that thought, the word of God, or word of the Lord is, is tried, he's a buckler of all that trust in him. Saying, look, if you want some protection, you want some safety, you want to be helped in this life, supported because that's what a buckler really is about. It's a piece of armor that would support and, and, and protect the soldier that is wearing it. You need the word of God. And again, you, you, you fast forward a few thousand years over to, to where Paul's writing about the armor of God. Every single element of the armor of God you can find in the word of God. Every single element. And here we are seeing what David's saying about this. And in verse 32, he says, For who is God save the Lord? 
And he's basically saying there is nobody else that is God except for the Lord himself. And again, these are titles that we see of him. It says, and who is a rock save our God? There is no other rock. Moses would talk about that, and he talked about the rock with a capital R over there to the nation of Israel, and talking about how the rock was going to guide him, and the rock was going to provide for him, all of these things. And you go again, fast forward to the New Testament, and you have Jesus Christ saying, upon this church, upon this rock I will build my church. And he wasn't talking about Peter. There's a whole religion that thinks it's all about Peter. It's not. It's about Christ. And because then you go over to Paul, and what is Paul saying? Paul's saying the foundation of our building is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself said, talking about the wise man and the foolish man, the wise man build his houses upon the rock. Foolish man builds it on the sand. Things have changed. And when the winds come and the waves come and the rain comes and the water comes and all of those things come, only one will stand. Because sand is not a good building material. It has a tendency to move a lot. The rock doesn't. Rock is secure. But he says, you know, who is our rock? Save our God. But take a look here in verse 33, and this is where we're getting at. God is my strength and power, and he maketh my way perfect. See, there is the key element. David points it out. What James is talking about when it comes to the perfect man, it's a man whose words that are coming out of him are aligned with the heart that is, if you will, fixed upon God, that is fixed upon God's ways, that is fixed upon God's word, that is hiding the word of God in his heart, that is using it as a lamp and a light, that is doing all of those things that we teach, you know, the kids in, you know, our basic program and our Sunday school and our junior church classes. We teach them all those, those, those verses to memorize. Because it all comes back to that. He just said God is perfect, made a connection to God's word, and he says, God's going to make my ways perfect. And what David is saying is, as long as I'm staying in God's path, God's ways, God's directions, therein is going to be the perfection. The minute I move out of them is the minute that I'm not there. Take a look at another couple of passages that we see here. Uh, go over to um, 1 Kings. 1 Kings uh, chapter 8. 1 Kings uh, chapter 8. Uh, Let's uh, jump down here to let's jump down to verse uh, uh, fifty-eight, 
where he says uh, that he may incline our hearts unto him, talking about God and the nation of Israel. This is Solomon dedicating temple, uh, or I, I should say making a covenant with uh, Solomon, God making a covenant with Solomon. Um, and to keep his, excuse me, uh, that he may incline our hearts unto him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. This is the word of God that he's talking about in verse 58. Verse 59, he says, Let these my words, wherewith I have made supplication before the Lord, be nigh unto the Lord our God, day and night, that he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel at all times, as the matter shall require, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. In verse 61, let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in his statutes to keep his commandments at, as at this day. Now I want you to think about that right there. He is talking about, Solomon's talking about this. Let our, your heart be, uh, therefore be perfect with the Lord our God. And he says there's one way to go about doing that. And you find in the following phrases, what does it have to do? The Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. And this is where people really, they struggle. God says it's possible. Man says it's not possible. The reason man thinks it's not possible is because man doesn't know what God has told them, and man is not following God's ways. He's not keeping God's commandments. He doesn't know anything about his judgments or his precepts or uh, his statutes or anything of God's word. But if somebody's going to have a perfect heart towards God, what they're going to do is they're going to crave this book. They're going to love this book. They're going to desire this book. They're going to desire this and want this more than anything else. Like Job was desiring the word of God, even though he didn't have it in written form, he said that God's word was, as he says, uh, you know, he needed more than his necessary food, if you will. Take a look at another passage. Let's go over to Psalms this time. Psalm chapter 37. Psalm chapter 37. Psalm chapter 37, verse 37. Mark the perfect man. Mark the perfect man. Now that's an interesting thing to say. Now obviously here, this is kind of, if you will, a messianic prophecy. Talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was perfect. He was always in the ways of God. He never deviated from his father's will. Even though he's God himself, he put himself in a fleshly form, subjected himself to the same temptations, everything that we were subject to and that we are subject to, all of those things to clearly demonstrate, A, here's the perfect man. It says, Mark the perfect man and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. Now, this is why we know it's talking about Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the prince of what? Peace. There is no peace without righteousness. 
The only way that you're going to get righteousness is through Jesus Christ. So we understand that this is what this is talking about here, but but at the same time, we can make an application and, and realize and say, hey, you know, if somebody is really truly wanting peace in their life, the end of that person's life, if you will, being peaceful, that is going to be a person that is striving for the perfection. You know, we're, 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 we're taught today that a person that is wanting perfection in their life is that there's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with them. You know, somebody tries to make sure that they do everything and, you know, maybe they were striving with their penmanship. Maybe they're striving, you know, with their, you know, all these things, trying to do that. I remember, you know, when I was uh, in school, you know, actually in classroom settings, uh, there was one girl that always turned her lesson, her, her homework in late and she kept struggling in classes, not because her homework was bad. It was just late because she wanted to make sure that it was 100% perfect as she wrote it down on the page. Everything was spelt correctly. Everything was neatly, you know, print or, you know, uh, the cursive handwriting back in the day when they actually taught that still. You know, that, that weird foreign language that nobody can read. Um, and she was making sure and it was just, you know, everything was the same font size. There was no variation. She used the margins on her ruled paper just exactly the way it was supposed to be. All of these things, she would turn it in light because she was focusing on that kind of perfection. Now, people will say, well, that, that you know, you, you can't always do that in life. You know, there are things that are, you know, you got to do things in time and got to get things done and so on and so forth. And I understand all of that. But, you know, sometimes we take some of that worldly mentality and we apply it to the Christian life and say, no, nah, I'm not even going to strive for perfection. A Christian that's not striving for, for to be perfect is disobeying God. Let's be clear about that. Because one of the verses he says, be ye perfect. We should be striving for that. Now look, I'm not talking about, you know, making sure every, uh, uh, you know, I is dotted and T is crossed when you're writing out a paper or something like that. But I'm talking about the intent and the motive behind it. Is that what we're doing? Is there anything lacking in it that is godly? Going back to the definition that we saw, that it is finished or complete so as to leave nothing lacking. If we're doing what we're doing for the Lord in such a way that there is nothing lacking that is godly, that is purpose for his glory, that is purpose to please him, we are striving for that perfection as we should be. Take a look at another uh, another verse. Let's go over to Psalm chapter 102. Excuse me, 101. Psalm 101 in verse 2. Here's David singing this song in verse 1, saying, I will sing of uh, 
uh, mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. I want you to notice the connection again. Where does wisdom come from? James talks about it and says the wisdom that is perfect comes from where? Above, from God. Where do we find wisdom? Well, we can go to the book of Proverbs and it tells us exactly where wisdom is found. It's found with God. It's found in his word. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of knowledge, it says, but it also says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, how do we know how to fear the Lord except through what he says in his word? We're not going to have a concept of how to do that. So when David's saying, I will behave uh, myself wisely in a perfect way, he's saying that he's going to be following what God tells him to do. He's going to be doing God's will. He says, O one, uh, wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Now, what's the verse that we talk about all the time when it comes to the heart? Isn't that the one over there in Jeremiah? About the heart being what? Deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it, right? David just said we can walk with a perfect heart. Now, I want you to keep this in mind because as we're going to get to these verses in verse 3 and 4 and over in the book of James here, before this evening's over, uh, it, it, it is a choice. It's something we get to decide. Are we going to try to, 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 to be perfect as God tells us, or are we just going to hope for the best? You know, there's the phrase that is always around there that, you know, when you do something and and you know it's not done a hundred percent. You know that there's something that's lacking in it, if you will. Uh, and and I've said this sometimes with uh, with my job, and it's you know I'll make the comment of like, well, I guess it's good enough for government work. And you just you know there's that phrase that we kind of all understand and know, right? You know, it's done just to the bare minimum of what it's supposed to be. You know, it's it's again that that government contract that happened to be won by the person that's the lowest bidder, which should scare you. <laughs> Next time you drive over a bridge, think about that. <laughs> the lowest bidder built that bridge. <laughs> but that being said, you, you know, we, we kind of have that mentality, and that worldly mentality creeps into us. This is why Romans 12 is so important. I had to mention it somehow, but Romans 12 is so important because we need to transform our mind from that carnal worldly thinking to thinking about the will of God, which is perfect. Then he says over there in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. 
So here, he, here he's saying, and then he goes into how, how to go about doing it. And in verse three, he says, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me and a forward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. He goes into these, this concept of what he's going to do to try to make sure that he's keeping in that perfect mindset, perfect heart, if you will. So as we see this, we see that it's very clearly this can be done. This can be done. And again, let's just as a reminder, David didn't have the whole Bible at this point in time. As a matter of fact, he was writing part of it. It wasn't complete. Let's go over to uh, another passage, and this time let's go over to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11 and in verse 5. And I want you to look at this, how this verse is phrased. It says, the righteousness of the perfect shall deliver them, but transgressors shall be taken in their own naughtiness. This verse right here, it matches what we find over in the book of Galatians. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The perfect, and he's referring to that a perfect as a person. And he's saying what they do in their righteousness in the end is what's going to deliver them. This is why everything that we do and everything that we strive to do, we should be checking to make sure, is it righteous? Is it, and again, to kind of help get an understanding of righteousness, is it done the right way, at the right time, with the right motive, and is it right? Those are simple things that we can ask ourselves that keep us in that path. If you will, to kind of, if you, if you will, give, give, give a quick checkup of where we are. Now, when it comes to words, that should be something that we should always ask. Is this the right time to say it? Is it right to say it at all? Is it, am I saying it to the right person? Am I saying it in the right manner, in the right way. Is my heart right in saying it? You know, going through just asking those five questions before you say something will cause an awkward silence. (laughs) I honestly think we need a few more awkward silences anymore waiting for people to think and before they respond. Think before they respond. A real good question is, am I being spirit-led to say this? Is this something the Holy Spirit really truly wants me to say, or is it going to grieve him as we see over in Ephesians 4? And I guarantee you, a lot of the time with believers, and I will throw myself in the mix too, 
there is a lot of face palming with the Holy Spirit. There is a lot of, oh, he did say that, didn't he? He never learns. Oh, look, he's still going. <laughs> Somebody shut him up, please. You know, just be fair. Sometimes we do that. We do that. Let's take a look at another passage again. You know, I, I want to make sure that we understand this concept. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, you know, uh, there'll be a lot of people that'll jump on that and they'll say, well, Matthew is written to the Jews, uh, kingdom-seeking Jews, and it is, absolutely. And yes, it has a very specific dispensational time concept with it. I totally understand that. But there are principles in here that we need to apply as Christians because all Scripture is given by God and is profitable. And if we ignore the parts of Scripture, we're putting ourselves in trouble. Now, obviously, we need to study to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing, knowing what's you know doctrinally applicable and what's not. You know, we're not wringing necks off of turtle doves and stuff like that because we understand that the, the sacrifice was completed on the cross of Calvary. So we, we don't obviously follow those laws anymore. Those were all, if you will, as Hebrew says, a type of, or a shadow of things to come when it came to Christ. But, 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 but here's a specific passage that, you know, we, we shouldn't shirk away from just because it's found with the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount to a bunch of kingdom seeking Jews talking about what the kingdom is going to be like and what the law of the kingdom is going to be. Go to verse uh, uh, um, 48, the very last verse of the chapter, chapter 5. Take a look at those first three words. Yeah, that does apply to us. Or excuse me, first four words. Be ye therefore perfect. Be ye therefore perfect. And here, here, here's, here's the standard, by the way. Even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And people are going to say that's impossible to do. Well, God also covers it in the book of Matthew. It says that with, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. There is absolutely no way I could ever be able to obtain what God's asking me to do if I do it in the flesh. If I do it under my own power, if I do it under my own pride and my own strength, I will fail and I will fail spectacularly miserable that it will show up on some Instagram reel. That's how bad it will be. But if I take the word of God which he has given me and I listen to it, and I listen to the Holy Spirit, and I follow what he's telling me to do, and I endeavor to seek to please him and seek to fulfill his will, I will get to that point where I'm fulfilling this commandment. 
And I have to keep that in mind. I want us to go to, um, I'm going to skip over a couple of these things here. Um, <clears throat> Second Corinthians, I want to make sure I cover this one. Because again, you know, somebody's going to jump on that and say, well, no, it's for a kingdom-seeking Jew. Okay, we're right. Let's just jump over to Second Corinthians chapter 13. <clears throat> Second Corinthians 13, Pauline epistles, right smack dab in the middle of it, right? Can't ignore this one. This one's written to Gentiles and Jews alike. And then he says here, uh, as he's closing this part out in verse 11 of chapter 13, finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Oh, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the love of God and peace shall be with you. Now, who did he write this to? The church at Corinth. And they struggled, they struggled to stay in the path of God. If there was a church that needed lane assist on their vehicle, it was the church of Corinth. <laughs> the, the, the car that I have out there has got that lane assist. Even when you turn it off, it still thinks it's on. You get too close to that fog line and it jerks the wheel over to one side. And you're like, because <laughs> it, it wants to make sure you're staying in your lane. God just told us as Gentiles, be perfect. Be perfect. Because over in Ephesians chapter 4, the whole reason that he's given us pastors and teachers and all of those individuals that help us that we find in the churches today, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12, is for the perfecting of the saints. Is for the perfecting of the saints. There's a lot of other verses, and I want to close or get to this one before we go to, to these other last two verses. I want to go to Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter three, Second Timothy chapter three, and I quoted part of this verse, but I want to get to the, the, the last part of this. Uh, it says that all Scripture in verse sixteen of Second Timothy three, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And we've talked about that as the corrective process that God has put in Scripture for us. But here in verse 17, it says that the man of God may be what? Perfect. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Not missing something, but completely finished and furnished to please God. That's the concept. That's what the Word of God does. Without the Word of God, perfection is not even possible. Without God's help, it's not even possible. So go back over here to, and we'll close with this in just a minute here, but go over to James chapter 3 again. James chapter 3, and verse 3 and 4, and I want us to look at this here. <clears throat> You know, he just said over there that, that if a man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. In that same thought, continuing in verse 3, Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth that they may obey us, and we turn about the whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, are driven with fierce winds, 
Yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. In verse 5, he goes into that small little member of our mouth, the tongue, and talking about that. But I want you to see what he's talking about in verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. And what we're getting to. And direct to the point, James gets to this, and he writes this in, in, in such a way that we will understand this. It is a control issue. It's a control issue. To whom are we yielding control? Everybody talks about self-control. Self-control can be very, very deceptive, okay? And what I mean by that is this. You know, we go to the store. We're, let's say we're, we're on a diet. But man, they just came out with a new marshmallow-filled gummy bear. And you're like, man, I gotta try it, right? And it's like, yeah, uh, you know, something, something like, they come out with a new flavor of a jelly bean. Gotta try it, right? You know, you know, there's that temptation that's there, right? And we talk about self-control. Self-control is like putting the bag down and going, no, I don't need this. And you know, we, we kind of walk up with our held head high. I, I did good. And then we go home and eat a whole bag of chips. So. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, we talk about self-control in that way. And, and, and again, there's a concept behind that. But the idea and the concept is, is who is controlling the heart? Remember over there, the psalmist says, search me and try me. But he specifically said, Lord, I want you to try my reins. Just like the horse is controlled. Just like the ship is controlled, who or what is controlling us? And that is going to be determined by what's in our heart. If we take the word of God and put that in our heart, that that's what we love, that that's what we desire, that that's what affects us, that that's where our affections are, then the control is going to be by God. Not by ourself. And sometimes we get controlled by other people. There are manipulators out there. You know, narcissists being one of them that go out there and hunt in the predatory type man, uh, mindset of it. You know, they hunt for the empaths looking for them to use them, abuse them, and then cast them aside. And, and, you know, that, that, that does happen with Christians. Let's not, let's not just be ignorant of that. Um, but, you know, we can see other people controlling. Other people can control us by telling us certain things and, if you will, spreading certain rumors and, you know, blah, 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 and so on and so forth to the point of division and discord and um, stuff like that. And, and you know, I, <laughs> I've seen some of, some of that recently, you know, that just has just happened and occurred with, with, with people that, that, that I know. And it's just like, wow. You know, somebody gets carried away, as it, Paul talks about with the dissimulation. Both Peter and Barnabas were guilty of that. 
They got carried away with the whole, you know, Judaism, Jewish thing. So much so that it offended, if you will, some of the Gentiles going, what are we, chopped liver? And Paul makes it clear, he died for all of us. Jew and Greek, it makes no difference to God. A soul is a soul that needs to be saved. And here we find it's about a control issue. What is going to control our tongue? What is it that we are going to allow to have that? Our buttons get pushed frequently. There are certain things that, you know, certain phrases, certain things that people do that just again, you know, will will, will get a person from being completely calm to a raging maniac in a matter of seconds. Because you know what? People look for that those sequence of buttons, don't they? And I always imagine it as if we've got this big set of buttons on the back and then, you know, somebody sitting in the back of us going like this, trying to figure out the code, and then finally they find it and they go, aha! And it unlocks the keypad, and next thing you know is we've got a raving maniac on our hands. That's what happens in our life. And that's why it's so important about that whole concept of letting and allowing and what we allow to happen to us, what we allow people to do to us, what we uh, allow in our lives. But James is getting to the point of it's not just this automatic process. It's about a specific control. You're on a horse, you're pulling that rein, and you're pulling it to direct it, to guide it to keep it on a path, to go a certain direction, to go a certain speed, to stop, to slow, to do whatever you want it to do. Same thing with a boat. You want it to go a certain way. You want it to go into the wind. You want to go against the wind. You want to follow this, you know, uh, uh, pathway in the sea, whatever it may be. It's all about control. And as I was believers, we need to ensure that Whoever's at the helm and whoever's got the reins is God. Because if it's not, then we have no hope of ever trying to fulfill this. Now, we'll take a look at more of this, uh, uh, you know, as we continue to to, to, to build on these principles here, because he starts getting into this, starts, you know, identifying the issues, starts identifying the problems that are caused by our mouths. And, and we were all way, 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 way too familiar with what happens when we say the wrong thing. But what we have to begin to understand is this is an issue of control. And I will, I'll make this statement and I'll be done. Submission and subjection is a very difficult thing. Those are two words that human beings don't like to hear. They won't want to be subject to anybody, and they don't want to submit to anybody. And it's a pride thing. But what we're going to find is, as God says very specifically, we've got to be careful. Ephesians 5 says that we should be subject one 
to another. As believers, now that's a hard thing. But our submission should be directly to God, His Word, the Holy Spirit, in order to accomplish that ask of pleasing Him. We'll talk about this, Lord willing, next week. But we're going to go ahead and stop right there uh, around the verses 3 and 5, and then we'll get into this a little bit in a war next week, Lord willing. But let's go ahead and be dismissed with a word of prayer, and uh, we can head home. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. Thank you again for an opportunity, Lord, to learn from you. And Lord, I pray that uh, the things that we've lurk, looked at, uh, specifically regarding some things of offending and perfection, Lord, would truly strike into our hearts and be very, be used, Lord, very powerful in our lives to, to please you with what we say. That it wouldn't be all about us and it wouldn't be uh, what we want to say, but Lord, it would be guided by your Holy Spirit and directed that we would please you, and that we would honor you, and that we would represent what you've done for us dying on the cross of Calvary uh, for our sins and rising again so that we can have eternal life and a home in heaven with you. And Lord, I pray that we would just strive for that perfection and strive to please you and honor you. And Lord, do it in such a way that we edify and encourage other believers around us. And that we represent as a witness to those that are lost the hope that lies within us. Thank you again, Lord, for those that are here. pray you take us home safely tonight. And all this I ask and pray in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.